The following program may offend those who say fudge instead of another F word. It may also offend those who say fudge when asked to rank their top three desserts. It's Monday, July 13th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So now let's say Paul Rudd, maker of fine baked goods, including scones, decided to get out of the scone game, rebrand eh, Ant-Man biscuits he's going with. And of course, there's the fact that um, his his signature product, the Rudd scones, may have engaged in Baker erasure. The actual maker of the scones has been marginalized during the process. Anyway, what I'm saying is I think it would be a best practice for Paul Rudd to affirmatively tell the world that he will no longer be talking about and making reference to and making us all hear about and think about the Rudscones. All right. We're talking about the Rudscones. And if Paul Rudd were to say no more talk of the Rudscones, I would think, given that Paul Rudd is a good and sensitive guy, he'd do it without saying over and over again, Rudscone, Rudscone, Rudscone. Unfortunately, the Washington football team could not do the same. This is from the official Twitter feed of the Washington Rudscones, the address of which is in its entirety at Rudscones. Let me describe, there's a press release and the press release is the statement from the Washington Rudscones football team about no longer being called the Rudscones. It is on letterhead. The letterhead says Washington Rudscones, Innova Sports Performance Center at Rudscones Park, 21300 Rudscones Park Drive, www.rudscones.com, media.rudscones.com. Key sentence. Today we are announcing we will be retiring the Rudscones name and logo upon completion of a review. Could you guys just stop being the Rudscones? without rubbing the Rudscones in our face over and over again? I mean, I guess if you rub it in our face long enough, our skin is going to turn a ruddy or a sanguinary color, but that's beside the point. I guess this is a retirement, and with any retirement, you got to say the retiree's name a lot. You put the retiree's name on a banner. Goodbye, Jim. Congratulations, Myrtle. You might give the retiree a watch engraved with the retiree's name. Unless the reason the retiree is being forced out is that he has a wildly inappropriate name. If the name is synonymous with a giant headache, you might not want to celebrate the name. When the Ford Edsel failed, I would hope Ford didn't have a huge farewell Edsel. We hardly knew you Edsel party for his son, Edsel Ford. Though in reaching for an example of uh, avoiding insensitivity, perhaps Henry Ford isn't the right guy to go to. The right guy, the most sensitive guy, of course, the great Paul Rudd. So what I'm saying is buy Ant-Man biscuits, Paul's pastries, and of course, boycott, turn your back on those Rudd scones. And maybe if you want to look inward, despite what they say, you might find some stale Washington State semolina rolls in your bread basket. On the show today... Why it's so hard to have a good conversation with the seemingly open, approachable, affable, and intelligent Betsy DeVos. Oh, wait, you disagree with that assessment? Well, that's on you, buddy. But first, Alexandra Petri is described in her official Washington Post bio as a columnist offering a lighter take on the news and opinions of the day. Oh, yeah? Well, the cover of her new book is a Goya painting depicting a titan chopping the head off his just-birthed child. The description of said book, nothing is wrong and here is why, is 
The collection is of impossibly cheerful essays on the routine horrors of the present era. That's a lighter take? Well, having witnessed the horrors of the present era, I'd say it, it is. Indeed, it is. Alexandra Petri up next. Is satire even possible these days anymore? What with an administration that uh, maybe becomes uh, comes pre-satired? Well, Alexandra Petri, the great satirist, shall I say, columnist, humorous columnist, but definitely not a humorist. Oh, God, that's a terrible appellation for The Washington Post is out with a new collection. Nothing is wrong. And here is why. And in my assessment, I don't know if it's possible or if the if the times are ripe for great satire, there's only one exception. If the execution is so good that it overwhelms whatever you think the preconditions are, and I think that might be what is going on in Nothing Is Wrong, and here is why. Hello, Alexandra. Welcome back to The Gist. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Have you ever sincerely used an exclamation mark in your life? Oh, all the time. Most of the time in emails, because I love to make certain that people know that I'm not disapproving of them silently and gravely. So I like mm-hmm. to really s- sprinkle those with exclamation marks liberally. Like an exclamation mark is like laughing at your own joke. And I also sometimes do that. So both of those things. Okay, so I'm going to amend my question. I, I take that. I understand what you're saying. But in this book, I think all of the exclamation marks are... They are, let's say, the whoever the voices of the person using them, I would say mostly they are meant to convey the sincerity of expression within that voice. But you, as the author and Metacritic, are using them to imply that these are not sentiments that should be taken sincerely. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I think also whenever I say a phrase like good news or the good news is, <laughs> usually what follows that tends not to be good news. Or like on the bright side, that's usually followed by something sort of extremely devastating. But yes. like my husband, whenever he hears me chuckling to myself and then I explain why, he's always like, that's really a very depressing thought. So I think maybe the inverted punctuation has also gotten stuck in my head. Well, it's also good for a setup, right? If humor is nothing but, what is it, a benign disruption of what you expect, when you set something up with a cheery, here's the good news, and then it's not good news, that itself follows the form of a joke. Right, exactly, because you expected something, and then instead you got banana. (laughs) I mean, the first four words of the book are, relax, nothing is wrong, and in fact, we should not relax, and many things are wrong. Exactly, I feel like sometimes... The best way of describing how bad things are is to try to state what's happening as though you were trying to say that it wasn't so bad because it immediately becomes clear how many things are just transparently, obviously wrong the second you start describing them as maybe going well. Right, right. Okay, so there are different kinds of uh, essays and sometimes there are little screenplays in the book, but I would say a main, if not the main form is that is someone being super positive about a situation that's truly horrible. I think the essay where Donald Trump tries to assess his own cabinet in a cheery way and then maybe determines that things haven't gone so well, that's one of them. Or even the main essay where you 
you know, the part one is called the brightest timeline. Like things aren't actually bright, right? Right. No, and I think there's also sort of this emperor's mirror type situation where you're trying to think what on earth would you like to see? Like what's the version of the world that you would like to be living in? And so like you have your inauguration and it's full of people and maybe Bono comes up to you and apologizes for no reason whatsoever. And just all of these little details that aren't true, but would make you feel better. And that can also sometimes factor in when you're trying to figure out how to be cheery inside a nightmare. Right, right, right. Or the Pope, you know, regard you as his best friend when that is clearly not the case. Exactly. There is, though, a, I think your introductory essay, the entire title and tone of the book, There Being Nothing Is Wrong. Many of these essays are written from the perspective of a person who is asserting things aren't wrong, but of course they are. In your mind, is it the same person? Is this person, say, a functionary of a government where they're tasked with spinning something? Are they a deluded person two seconds away from laughing maniacally and, uh, you know, I don't know, playing with their own feces or something? Like, who is this lying person who is putting on this sheen, this gloss of positivity on this horrible situation? Well, I feel like it almost varies a little bit from piece to piece because the thing that you're maniacally excited about in one can be slightly different than another. But I sort of think of it as like my Facebook feed. If my Facebook feed were getting correct information about what was going on, but also were still <laughs> as excited about it as they are. So uh-huh. it's sort of a combination of those two tones. Is that famous picture of uh, the dog surrounded by fire saying everything is fine? Does that factor in or is that tone expressed anywhere? Oh, yeah. You know, I feel bad that everyone wasted that wonderful cartoon months before they really blew the powder on that one early. And now we have to devise an entirely (laughs) new meme. Uh, and that was like five years so, too early. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess human beings have this tendency to look at the world darkly, even if the world can actually tone down four different shades of opacity. Or maybe we didn't even know we had the capacity to live in a world that was that dark. Wow, that was almost poetry. Like yeah, opacity, opacity, capacity. Capacity. I was taken on a journey there. It's funny because you'd often do try to find bright spots in dark situations and that could be actually a healthy coping mechanism but there's also sort of this like like Voltaire was always being like wasn't it great how we had a very efficient earthquake that killed 30,000 people and of course you know that what he's actually saying is like what a devastating loss of human life isn't this awful how do we you know exist in a world where this can happen but if you put it jovially enough sometimes it can startle people is the hope yeah There are some essays where we figure out what the genre is about a third or a quarter of the way through, like the one where Donald Trump is looking out the window, contemplating the ethical implications of having demanded that we lock Hillary up over unauthorized emails, and then information came to light that Ivanka herself used unauthorized emails. What are you channeling in that essay? It's, it's funny how the emails, they were everything, and now they're sort of a wisp on the, the horizon, a cloud that's been forgotten, something else that's been forgotten. I, I can't even bring it to mind. I've forgotten it so completely. And I love a good fairy tale structure where you have really just rituals turned ominous and people marching around and gates opening and bells clanging right, right, and everything yes. happening. <laughs> and so just sort of all of the nightmarish punishments that people were going to visit on this horrible email violation, now that we know that potentially even it has penetrated unto Ivanka herself, you wind up having a situation where 
those words are all applied with their same force as needs must, because this was such a serious infraction that to do anything less than clang all the bells exactly the same number of times you were going to clang them before would be a miscarriage of justice. And so I think trying to sort of heighten it and play up the pomp of sort of arcane punishment can be fun. Right, right. And part of that is also what if the what if the king in a fairy tale, what if someone who sees himself as a redoubt of doing what is just. What if this person were Donald Trump? And it's so much fun to imagine him internally struggling with how do I how do I be fair in this situation? Because damn it, my reputation is at stake and I have articulated this premise and how can I possibly find my way around it? And then also to further sit with him as he thinks about the implications of visiting an injustice or a a hardship upon a loved one. This is not the Donald Trump we know. No, exactly. I mean, imagine the the struggle and the hardship. And when you really have to live out your principles, and if there's one thing we know about Donald Trump is that he's always lived out his principles. They're not a matter of convenience with him. They're held as deeply as his beautiful (laughs) certificate of health is to his heart. So this is, I mean, this really gets at one of these questions that comedians or people who think and perform comedy are always grappling with, you know, how can you be funny about Trump? And you found a way, which is that you take what we know of him and you juxtapose him into a different genre or you squeeze that 242 pound, though one pound from obese carcass into another type of character who has to act a certain way. And it's just hilarious. It's just hilarious to picture this guy who we very much know trying to act with chivalry or act with, you know, a gunslinger's honor or act as a parent who actually is interested in the emotional life of Donald Trump Jr. and Eric. No, exactly. And I think the the thing with him is that he himself has been sort of portraying a character for as long as we've known him. And so sometimes it can actually be more effective to take the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying, which are often objectively strange when they're not actively harmful and menacing and try to put them through another filter. Like uh, Sarah Cooper is another person who does this, where just taking the thing out of the context of this enormous bag of flesh and horror and having it appear, just you see how bizarre all of the words are even coming from someone else. If you just focus on him, I mean, like there's all the kinds of aspects that he possesses that many good people possess. Like, you know, if you're obese, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person far from it right right i think it's also just like the most interesting (laughs) thing about himself is not himself if anything that that he's like sort of a void into which everyone pours all of their knowledge and ideas and curiosity and so you have to think of something else some other way in that's not just how much time can i spend on this man because you know you only have one precious beautiful life and if you spend too much of it staring into this a void That's a new word I've just coined. It's abyss and void, and I couldn't decide which one I was saying, so I said both of them. Um, (laughs) Then you you wake up 60 years from now with, like, a giant over that's entirely about Donald Trump. Oh, no, I'm I'm having one of those ghost of Christmas past moments. That's right. So – Some of these essays were great because they brought me back to a thing in the news or a scandal past, like Scott Pruitt and his moisturizing lotion. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for reminding me of that scandal. He's one of my favorites because I feel like I I love trying to find an explanation for something where somebody's behaving bizarrely and you're like, well, it could be that they're just doing something corrupt and 
got confused, or it could be that there's that he's slowly transforming into a, an enormous lizard. And why don't we explore both possibilities, give them equal time, <laughs> as it were. And I had a lot of fun with that. Plus, you know, it's, it's nice to sometimes hop back into the frying pan as a little break from the fire. Yeah. Now, if I read your essay to you describing members of Trump's cabinet and inner circle that turned out not to be the best and the brightest, and they have phrases like, instead of the best, instead of the brightest, we had uh, the ghost of a Christmas yet to come. We had an aardvark in a model UN sweater. We had a hairpiece on top of a novelty skeleton with light up eyes. We had a paid advertisement for unscientific vitamin supplements and a cursed Oscar statuette. All right. Do you know specifically which people all of those descriptions apply to? Ha, huh. I will leave that up to the reader's discretion, but a couple of those I have like a clear mental line. I feel like oh, there's only so many people who really deeply in their essences resemble a skeleton with light up eyes and a hairpiece. Yes. I mean, in some of them, I didn't even read the Mr. Monopoly Man. That one's pretty obvious. You also talk about six bat, six rejected Batman villains. I think when Steve Mnuchin and wife visited the Mint, he was at least four of those rejected Batman villains. Yeah, and, and Roger Stone was the other two. <laughs> so do all of them actually apply to a person or was it just uh, you were riffing on... You got some inspiration from the retinue and cabinet as a whole, and then you started riffing on descriptions of types of terrible people. I think a lot of it's just sort of the general caliber of person who would be attracted to such a cabinet. And so you have a couple of actual people at the service models, and then you've got just sort of the people who I presume are lined up outside of the West and East wings, uh, ready to leap into their position should they fall. Yes, that's the thing. So since you published that essay in which you describe people around Donald Trump, one as being a stand of reeds into which hateful words have been whispered for months, let us realize that we are now, we are now dealing with not that stand of hateful reeds, but we are dealing with the person who was the second stringer or maybe the third stringer behind the hateful reeds, words, human. Right, exactly. Now we've got like some hateful kudzu or uh, hateful poison oak. Like, we're out of the reeds and into less desirable forms of plant life. There are some essays in here that I think are pretty much sincere, like how difficult it is to get the train to stop. Yes. The good thing about being a humor columnist is that while most of the time the explanation is that you will provide humor, some things just aren't funny, and so you can't treat them as though they are, because ideally humor is based on truth, and if there's it's true that nothing about something is laughable, then you don't laugh, you just speak as honestly as you can. And so I've always been grateful to have the opportunity to get to describe things that aren't funny as not being funny, because yeah. otherwise you wind up sort of in like a an awkward gesture type role, and it can be soul crushing. And sometimes you just can't see anything ridiculous about it or you're just too exhausted emotionally and otherwise to do so. And in those cases, you can still say something and sometimes it's better to do that. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is the first thing the reader will see, which is the cover of your book. It is that Goya painting of Saturn devouring his son. Other than the fact that it's in the public domain, what drew you to that picture? Oh, man, I was initially going to be like, let's do a Hieronymus Bosch because I love a good sort of hellscape. But then uh, my husband was like, how about a Goya? And I was like, oh, even better. And 
like just the fact like he's got like a little hat on and mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like a classic <laughs> MAGA hat but it's also just like he's got a little hat um I don't know I find there's something very stupid and delightful in that but I also think it's a nice cover by which the book ought to be judged please judge it by its cover um unless you find the cover creepy in which case take the cover off and uh just read it that way and that's also fine whatever is your comfort level Alexandra Petri is out with a new book, a new collection. It is fantastic. Nothing is wrong, and here is why. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. And now the spiel. Chief among the reasons that it's so hard to have a good, honest conversation with a member of the Trump administration is that so few are good or honest. Cheap shot, accurate shot, but cheap shot. But there's something else going on. It's not that, or it's not just that they will lie to you. It's that they won't even engage you in the conversation that you're trying to have. This is evident in Kyle McEnany's, I think the real issue is, and Kellyanne Conway's, you know, the question you should be asking is, not engaging in the argument on its terms. It's clear that changing the terms of the debate is an especially useful tactic when you can't win the debate, but it is really frustrating to the listener. In fact, it makes listening kind of a waste of time. That was on display when Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos showed up on a couple of the Sunday shows yesterday, it being Sunday. On one, CNN State of the Union, Dana Bash attempted to lay the groundwork quite early to try to head off, because they only had a short amount of time allotted, a tendentious argument about why in-person schooling is good or better than doing it remotely. Because that wasn't the debate they were t- trying to have, which one's better. Everyone agrees if you could do in-person schooling, you should do in-person schooling so long as in-person schooling can be done without imperiling the school workers, the children, and the children's families. So with this in mind, Dana Bash, quite constructively, I thought, said this up top. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. And let me start by saying that everybody shares the same goal. They (laughs) want children to be back in school. Okay. Get it? No one is saying kids shouldn't be back in school. Everyone is saying it's better to be in school. The question isn't, should kids be in school? Is going to school best for kids? Not the question. We need to be clear on what the question is and what the question isn't. And remember, let me say it again, we all want children to be back in school. So knowing that, how do you get them to go back to school safely? Here now the first words out of Betsy DeVos's mouth. Well, the key is that kids have to get back to school. Yes, yes, I know, I know. This is exactly the discussion I didn't want to have. Stipulated, conceded, they got to get back to school. But how and can we do it safely? Or as Dana Bash put it, quite less aggrievedly than I, to Betsy DeVos. Madam Secretary, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I mean, I'm a parent. Uh, I want my uh, school-age child to go back to school as much as you are saying you want for everybody. But the question is, can it happen safely? Can it happen safely? To which said, sure, because we'll wash hands and other countries are doing it. And also because the American Academy of Pediatrics says being in school is good for kids. To which Bash said, yes, 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 of course it's good for kids. Haven't, I, haven't we all said this? But the AAP also said, 
because there's a pandemic, we can't recommend it as being safe in many, many places. So what did Secretary DeVos say about that? Now, what we're saying is that kids need to be back in school. <gasps> okay, over to Fox, where Chris Wallace tried to interview her. There, she did the same, yes, yes, but being in school is good for kids. But she also had a slightly different argument, or a slightly different emphasis. Here she is now on Fox. Well, Chris, there's nothing in the data that suggests that kids being in school is in any way dangerous. We know that children uh, contract and uh, ha have the virus at far lower incidence than any other part of the population. And we know that other countries around the world have open, reopened their schools and have done so successfully and safely. And kids there are going back to school every day. And so that has got to be the posture here. My posture over here is best described as hand-smacking forehead while doubled over in either convulsions of laughter or paroxysms of rage. There is nothing in the data that says schools are dangerous. All right, okay, that's her posture. But then she also had some other thoughts on posture. The guidelines are also that, guidelines. They're meant to be helpful as in a posture of how you actually do things and how you actually move ahead. The posture of how you do things. That would be, I suppose, an upright posture or maybe bent at the knees, palms forward, ready to field whatever comes at you. It is, she said later in the same interview, there has to be a posture of doing something. Also, once more, good luck in about a four or five minute span during this interview on Fox. And so, the, again, the, uh, the Do we posture know about needs how to they be spread around. The Little posture there, too. Chris Wallace could not take her posturing anymore. Of course, he was privy to four of her postures. CNN only got one, this gem-like usage. Well, the CDC has also been very clear to say they never recommended schools close down in the first place. And they are very much of the posture that kids need to be back in school for a multitude of reasons. I know someone who needs to be back in school or at least any place where they have access to thesauruses. Wait, what's this? You could get synonyms in an online website. So their posture means their position, their stance, their opinion. They are of the belief they are recommending or how about this one, which I've been trying to puzzle out? There has to be a posture of doing something. I just think she's totally using the, the wrong word in that case. Or maybe not. Maybe what she's actually saying, in fact, I think it is what she's actually saying, is that they have to have the appearance of doing something, which actually is the truest thing she said, because that is the Trump administration's stance, attitude, pose, and oh yeah, posture. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, Margaret Kelly, with executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Alicia Montgomery. They have combined to redraw a Hieronymus Bosch triptych. They've replaced all the demon horns with those helmets that let you drink two beers at once. And they've also rendered all the upright goat creatures as wearing I'm with stupid t-shirts. Stupid being the anguished soul being tortured by the goats. The Gist. We are fully in support of posture. We're positively preposterous. Umpuru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening.